section number one of a hypocritical romance and other stories this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sounds Sharp, out of Toronto, Ontario, Canada. A Hypocritical Romance and Other Stories by Caroline Tickner. Chapter One A Hypocritical Romance. It was rather to my credit than otherwise that I first became a hypocrite, since it was wholly owing to my natural amiability and unselfishness of disposition. As I look back upon the first stages of my development in that direction, I find it in every way a most commendable deterioration, which sprang from a kindly desire to please and to conciliate, and not from a natural tendency to deceive or falsify. When Aunt Sophia, whose whole soul is wrapped up in music, came to visit us, somebody must needs sit by and be politely appreciative while she rendered chopin and mendelssohn or interpreted mozart and schumann with that true enthusiasm which fails to recognize the foolish flight of time all the other members of our family openly avowed their keen dislike for music and quietly but speedily withdrew to distant corners of the house whenever aunt sophia began to play leaving me to suffer patiently, propped in some comfortless armchair in the drawing-room, a most unwilling victim. I presume that it would be hard to find a more unmusical household anywhere, Aunt Sophia would remark sharply, turning about to find that one by one the members of the family had melted from the room during some favorite sonata which should have held them spellbound in their respective places. It is a sad thing for any one to have no delicate perception of what is most beautiful and elevating, she would continue, but it is utterly lamentable for a whole family to be found wanting in the highest attributes. At this point, I would protest that father had important letters to write, and mother household duties which she must attend to, while George was obliged to study his Latin. Don't try to excuse them. Aunt Sophia would exclaim, they have not an atom of music in their souls, and when I have said that, I have exhausted all that can be said in their defense. But Aunt Sophia, I would feebly venture, longing to follow George up to the billiard room, whence the click of balls was wafted to me during the pianissimo passages. I'm afraid that I have not very much music in my soul either, to which she would make answer, don't detract from your natural gifts, Elizabeth. You are quite different from all the others. You have the genuine musical temperament. I recognize the fact. When you were but a mere infant in arms, even then you were appreciative. You cried loudly when I came to a deeply pathetic passage of Beethoven's. You responded instantly to the wild sob in the notes, so that your nurse was forced to bear you screaming from the room. After such a rebuke, I would sink back into my chair with desperate resignation and try to take catnaps while Aunt Sophia continued her interpretations until callers or luncheon brought me the coveted release. 
many a time have I sat rigidly against the stiff, unsympathetic sofa cushions in the drawing room, sternly philosophizing on the selfishness of frank and truthful souls, apostles of sincerity who would not pretend, though, by so doing, they could mollify all strife and bring joy and goodwill to all mankind. I was conscious of being in perfect sympathy with every uncomplimentary utterance which Father and George let fall regarding the great composers. In fact, I felt I was probably more actively antagonistic to these honorable gentlemen than they were, for I knew enough of Aunt Sophia's idols to hate them individually. Father and George merely despised them as a whole, while I cherished one form of hatred for Wagner and another for old Johann Sebastian Bach, my forced acquaintance with them gave me power to discriminate in my dislikes, and I found Mendelssohn's songs without words unbearable in quite a different way from Chopin's nocturnes. And yet, I had often unblushingly assured Aunt Sophia that certain pieces were exquisitely beautiful, after having surreptitiously read some carefully concealed novel through the entire performance. This was a line of conduct which, I must own, lowered me in my own estimation, though I mentally commented that I was not untruthful in my statement, since undoubtedly the pieces were exquisitely beautiful to Aunt Sophia. On the strength of my musical temperament, I greatly endeared myself to her, and was rewarded for my unselfishness by costly rings at Christmas, or pearl opera glasses and gold vinaigrettes upon my birthdays, while the other members of the family were meted out the penalty attendant upon unsympathetic natures. Aunt Sophia sent them decorative cards, impossible pen-wipers, and gilt-edged diaries, or little painted picture-frames, which would not stand upright, and into which no pictures could be made to fit. But Aunt Sophia also favored me with a seat beside her at the symphony rehearsals, which privilege I couldn't very well refuse, and this, in the eyes of those at home, more than offset innumerable vinaigrettes and rings. How I dreaded Friday afternoons, and how much oftener they came around than any other afternoons. If I could get up a headache, or go out of town, or in any way avoid the weekly ordeal, I did so with alacrity, although I never allowed Aunt Sophia to imagine that anything short of grim necessity could keep me from her side. It was, of course, hypocritical to the last degree to make her think that she was giving me so much pleasure when I was counting off each number on the program with barbaric gratitude and murmuring to myself, one more over. But after all, if it gave her satisfaction to imagine that because the Ninth Symphony lifted her up to the seventh heaven of bliss, it was elevating me to the same altitude, why should I undeceive her? I used to manage to get delayed in one way or another almost every Friday so as to avoid the overture, appearing in good season just often enough to avert suspicion. As it was, I succeeded in convincing Aunt Sophia 
that the line of cars on which I was dependent must be in a deplorably mismanaged condition, and in spite of my assurances that in a crowded thoroughfare blockades were unavoidable, she persisted in writing several scathing protests to the evening papers, headed, The Grievance of a Music Lover. Whenever I was obliged to listen to an overture, I invariably had some pressing engagement which would not permit me to remain after the first movement of the symphony, so that on the whole my sufferings were considerably abridged. Aunt Sophia was not, however, contented with having me beside her at symphony concerts only, but insisted that I should accompany her to recitals, oratorios, delightful little musicales, and many other entertainments of like objectionable character. Thus, I had many rare chances which would have turned any lover of music green with envy, and of which I availed myself like a lamb prepared for the slaughter. Do not let me give the impression that these occasions were entirely seasons of unmitigated suffering for me. No, I was able to extract enough pleasure from them in my own peculiar way to make my musical life tolerable, else I could never have been such a successful hypocrite. In the first place, I soon schooled myself to a high level of mental tranquillity, which made it possible for me to close my ears altogether to outward sounds. In this blissful state, concertos and polonaises floated by me, and I remained unharmed. I heard them not. I would sit absorbed in my own pleasant meditations regarding the proper treatment of an Easter bonnet, or the artistic draping of a party gown for half an hour at a time, serenely unconscious of the orchestra, which might have interpreted anything from Brahms to Yankee Doodle without troubling me. Occasionally, Aunt Sophia would remark that it was a pleasure, during the different movements, to watch the feeling of the orchestra reflected in a sensitive face like mine. At such times, I could not help experiencing a pang of remorse, but I regarded it as only fair to my aunt that I should be the one to suffer for the deception, so I endured the pricks of conscience and spared her the humiliating truth. I could not really blame myself very much on second thoughts, however, for it was not my fault if Aunt Sophia, with her great powers of discrimination, could not distinguish between the reflection of a trio in B major and that of a new Easter bonnet. After a while, I came to find the music a perfect inspiration to me. If I had been worried or troubled by some complex question which I found it difficult to answer, I had only to give myself up to the influence of some stirring symphony, and instantly all was well. My mind would clear without delay, and the vexed questions would straighten themselves out at once. As I calmly sat by Aunt Sophia's side, one delightful train of thought would follow another through a charmed sequence, which extended on and on until it reached the final squeak of the violins. I planned Christmas presents for my friends, laid out my summer wardrobe, 
checked off my calling list or thoughtfully reviewed my latest favorite book or again i faithfully recalled the numerous recipes i had acquired at cooking school and wondered if they would turn out the same at home or else went over my part in the theatricals which our church was getting up to help the cause of foreign missions from time to time my chain of thought was broken in upon by long bursts of applause in which i always tried to join until i found that many choice spirits regarded clapping as something quite apart from a high order of appreciation this knowledge was a great relief to me and ever after i simply sighed and looked off dreamily into space this method gave aunt sophia as much satisfaction as if i had rapped crudely on the floor with my umbrella and was a great saving on my gloves i derived a good deal of satisfaction from the regulation house musicales to which we went apart from the refreshments as i could almost always slip away from my aunt's side and find a seat either in a far distant corner of the hall or on the stairs where i invariably encountered several kindred spirits also bent upon enjoying themselves often we succeeded in withdrawing far enough upstairs to talk straight through without disturbing anyone at home alas i was considered thoroughly musical this being the only construction which could be put upon my regular attendance at symphony rehearsals and for this reason i was mercilessly thrust into the breach whenever any musical people came to the house elizabeth is the musical member of this family mother would remark with satisfaction as she withdrew leaving me to enjoy a new collection of italian songs which cousin louisa had thoughtfully brought forth from the depths of her saratoga trunk then father always anxious to give pleasure to his children actually invited to the house rising composers and long-haired students of harmony with whom forsooth i needs must struggle through woefully tedious conversations regarding their pet theme while strains of merry laughter harassed me from the frivolous groups about the room even george who should have understood me better than the rest brought home with him from college prominent members of the glee club and friends who played the mandolin by the hour to whose performances the family listened resignedly on my account when i should have so much preferred to welcome the most insignificant member of the football team under these circumstances one would reasonably imagine that i must have gradually grown veritably musical but i did not on the contrary i cared less and less for a violin each time i heard one played disliked a piano more and more daily felt my aversion to a cello constantly strengthening while my contempt for even a cabinet organ steadily increased and so on through the whole list of these instruments of torture not to mention the vocalist toward whom my attitude was still less friendly but now the retribution which for the sake of poetic justice not the other kind should overtake all hypocrites 
descended upon me. When I realized what had happened, I was for a time perfectly aghast. Then I rallied and made up my mind to face the inevitable and make the best of it. Oh, ruthless fate! I had fallen in love with a man after Aunt Sophia's own heart, a man whose whole soul was bound up in music. Could anything more unfortunate have happened to me, or anything more grievously grotesque? For a long time I struggled against my natural inclination, and did my best to root up such a misplaced fancy from my heart. I knew full well that I could never be happy with an intensely musical helpmate. Why, then, should I doom myself to lifelong wretchedness? I would not. I would shun his society. I would not see him when he came to call. I gave strict injunctions to the maid to this effect, telling her that when he came, she was to say that I was not at home. But it was no use. My admirable resolutions vanished into thinnest air the very first time I saw him coming up the street, and fearing lest my heartless instructions should be implicitly carried out, I ran down and let him in before he had a chance to ring the bell, and then pretended, alas, how easily I can pretend, that I was just passing through the hall wholly by accident. I felt convinced that I could never be happy with him, and yet I seemed to feel that I should be equally miserable without him. Therefore, since I was destined to be unhappy in either case, I concluded I might as well be wretched in his society. Then I told the maid to understand that when he came to call, I was not at home to anybody else. But I am getting along much too rapidly with my narrative. I haven't mentioned where it was I first met Winthrop. His name is Winthrop. Winthrop Vanderwater. Such a nice name. A happy combination of the best in Boston and New York. But to think that I should have seen him first at a symphony rehearsal, leaning against a radiator near the wall, not far from where Aunt Sophie and I were seated. I have been trying to make up my mind during some Russian music, whether to have a girl's luncheon for Cousin Louisa or a card party in the evening, when suddenly I became conscious that someone was watching me, and I glanced up hurriedly to meet a clear and penetrating gaze which seemed to read my very soul and fathom all my frivolous thoughts of card parties and luncheons. Tall, handsome, interesting, he stood with his head thrown back, drinking in every note of that wild, crashy Russian music, as though his life depended on the verdict of the orchestra. I knew him instantly for one of those genuine enthusiasts who prefers the concerts when there are no soloists, and who pay a quarter of a dollar, and, with a dreamy indifference to having people trample on their toes, enjoy their music standing up. I glanced at him once or twice during the symphony, just to see if my theory regarding his being a true devotee was correct, and sure enough it was, for he stayed to the very end of the final movement. I had intended to leave before the second movement myself, but I decided to stay just to test my own powers of perception 
in regard to musical types. He interested me as a clearly defined specimen, whom I could satisfactorily analyze. He had a ponderous-looking book under his arm, which he opened from time to time. This was a score of the music, of course. Then he wrote something down with a pencil occasionally. These were comments upon the rendering of certain passages, no doubt. I came to the conclusion that he was studying harmony, and therefore came regularly to the rehearsals, while he probably played some instrument with intelligence and feeling. The following Friday brought proof of the correctness of my surmises, for my musical friend was there again, in precisely the same spot, and after that I used to see him there regularly, apparently wrapped up in the music, with his eyes fixed upon the score-book. Quite often I thought I caught him staring at Aunt Sophia, and I wondered if he recognized a kindred spirit in her. I could not help wondering if I could possibly learn to enjoy music in that way, and I began to endeavor conscientiously to enter into the spirit of every piece. But it was no use. Perhaps if I had begun sooner I might have succeeded, but now it was too late. The more I tried to be appreciative and sympathetic, the less I became so, until I really made myself feel quite depressed and wretched. One afternoon, I went with Aunt Sophia to a music at four, camp stool affair, which we reached somewhat later than my aunt intended we should, and earlier than I hoped we might, owing to a friendly motor on the electric car, which refused to make the wheels go round for nearly half an hour. Aunt Sophia was very much annoyed, as she considers it an insult to one's hostess to go late to camp stool entertainments. Moreover, she likes to have her choice of seats. I don't think myself that it makes a particle of difference when one arrives at a camp stool reception, for go as early as you may, they have always begun. Someone is singing, no matter at what time the drawing room is reached, and all the other people who have apparently been there for hours look up with annoyance as you enter and make an unpardonable racket trying to sink noiselessly into a vacant chair toward which your hostess nods with a pained smile. If by chance you manage to slip in during an intermission and are about to shake hands and let fall some cordial utterance, my lady puts her finger impressively to her lips as she points to some instrumental celebrity who is about to inflict himself upon the assembled company, and with an apologetic blush you subside uncomfortably into the nearest seat. On the afternoon in question, somebody motioned Aunt Sophia to a front seat that was unoccupied, and I at once slipped into the hall, determined to steal upstairs and wait in the dressing room. I felt so cross and unmusical. My escape was cut off, however, by our hostess, who touched my arm. There will be some more chairs here in a moment, she whispered, much to my discomfiture. And then, who should appear but my symphony man, laden with camp stools? I want you to know my nephew, Winthrop Vanderwater, she whispered. And a moment later, he had opened a chair for me and sat down in another at my side. 
I was about to venture some remark to the effect that I was sorry to have lost so much of the music, when someone began a concerto and robbed the world of one falsehood, which, however, would not have materially increased the sum total for which I am responsible already. We both listened to the music with breathless attention, and said how beautiful and delightful each selection was. I would have rather talked all the time, but I pretended I was enjoying it as much as he was, and indeed I applauded one aria so warmly that he insisted upon clapping until he brought about an encore, which served me just right. He asked if I was fond of music, and I said, Oh, yes and he remarked that he already knew it, he had seen me at so many concerts. Moreover, he said that he could tell, by watching people's faces, how much they were enjoying themselves. I tried to be as truthful as I could, and replied that I nearly always enjoyed myself, to which he responded, most impertinently, that I must have perfect taste. At this point, I was rather glad to have a man get up and start a recitative. While he was singing it, I determined that I would not admit to Mr. Vanderwater that I had ever noticed him at the rehearsals. So at the end of the recitative, I ventured that I was surprised to know he had ever seen me before, and inquired if he had attended the last three or four concerts. Then what do you think he said? after I had seen him there every time with that big book, that he regretted he had been obliged to miss the last three or four. Then you must have a double, I exclaimed foolishly, before I realized that he was only trying to trap me into acknowledging that I had seen him at the concerts after all. At first I was inclined to be provoked with him for such a deception, but on second thoughts, I made up my mind to laugh it off. Laughing things off is even better policy than honesty itself, I find. For, if a thing is deeply important, it's the surest method of concealment. And if it's not, why, it's the best fun. Later, when the refreshments were served, I introduced Mr. Vanderwater to Aunt Sophia and we all talked violin recitals and sopranos and quartets until it was time to go home, and he seemed perfectly absorbed in every musical topic that Aunt Sophia dragged into the conversation. After that afternoon, we ran across him at almost every musicale or concert that we attended, and he invariably came out of the hall at the same moment we did and found our carriage for us. He was so polite and so musical that Aunt Sophia was perfectly charmed with him and went so far as to ask him to come to a pokey little song recital that she was to give in my honor as I was visiting her for a few weeks at that time. He came and found it most delightful, so he assured Aunt Sophia, though I think that everybody else must have had a frightfully stupid time. Certainly they all looked bored to death. Mr. Vanderwater, however, must really have enjoyed the song recital, for he came to call immediately afterwards to tell us how much pleasure we had given him, and from that time he dropped in upon us very often, and we had most delightful times, except that he always brought the conversation round to music, 
and when he did not introduce it, I felt obliged to, knowing how fond he was of holding forth upon the subject, while Aunt Sophia, as a matter of course, never spoke of anything else. And so the long and short of it was that we talked music, 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 and very little else beside. Each time that he came to see us, I was dragged in more deeply, until I felt that it would be impossible ever to extricate myself from such a false position. For had I not pretended to share his deep and true enthusiasm, and assumed that I agreed with all his lovely theories regarding the superiority of the musical soul? At last my position grew simply intolerable. I could not go on forever making believe. I was not hypocrite enough for that, so I determined to make a clean breast of everything the next time that we met. And then I postponed my confession until the next time but one, and so on. Finally, somebody sent Aunt Sophia three tickets for a Wagner concert. She was, of course, quite charmed at the thought of hearing nothing but this esteemed favorite's compositions for a whole evening, and in a moment of enthusiasm, she suggested asking Mr. Vanderwater to act as our escort, in order that he might share the treat in store for us. He accepted, as I knew he would when he learned what a heavy concert it was to be, and when eight o'clock arrived, we were all sitting stiffly erect in those luxurious seats which the first balcony of our beloved music hall affords, with our knees uncomfortably jammed against the seats in front, ready to surrender ourselves to several hours of unalloyed enjoyment. There we sat, filled with different emotions, Aunt Sophia brimful of expectant delight, Mr. Vanderwater apparently the same, while I remained silent and glum. The time had come for me to pretend no more. After three long pieces, through which I looked as bored as I knew how, Aunt Sophia asked me if I was not feeling well, to which I replied wearily that I felt tired and very hot. Then our escort suggested that, after the next number, we might step out into the hall where there was a greater supply of oxygen. At the end of the next piece, I said that I should like a breath of air, and asked Aunt Sophia if she would not come too, but she declined, saying that we might walk about, but for her part, she didn't care to risk losing the beginning of the next selection. As I stepped out into the hallway, I drew a deep sigh of relief, for I knew that I was about to free myself of a great weight which had been slowly crushing me into a musical mockery. We sauntered to an open door at the end of the hall and paused, inhaling the cool breeze. That is the fire escape out there, my companion remarked casually. Is it? I responded absently, peering through the doorway. Come and explore it, he urged, stepping out and offering me his hand. It's a good plan for you to know where to go in case of fire. I followed, and we stood looking down into the darkness. There is no luxury like pure air, I ventured, inhaling a long breath and wondering if he considered it dangerous to let go of my hand, now that we were standing in a comparatively safe spot. Yes, 
he replied, apparently unconscious of the fact that he was crushing one of my rings into my little finger. One does not like to be suffocated, even to the strains of Wagner. I knew that the fatal moment had arrived. Do you think me so devoted to Wagner? I questioned faintly. Oh, I'm quite sure of it, he replied. Then know that it is not safe to be sure of anything in this world, I exclaimed, drawing away my hand. Do you want me to tell you the sober, earnest truth for once? I hate Wagner, hate him, hate him. I could not see my companion's face as he stood by my side, but I could eloquently imagine his shocked expression. And not only Wagner, but all the other composers, I went on chokingly. I hate and abhor them all. I'm not really musical, not the least in the world, and I can't let you go on thinking that I am. Is this true? Do you mean what you say? He broke in excitedly. Yes, only too true, I went on hurriedly. I'm a hollow sham, a false pretender. I drifted into it all by trying to please Aunt Sophia, and it was so hard to make up my mind to undeceive you. Believe me, Aunt Sophia is the only one in sympathy with your beautiful musical ideas. I should be glad if I never heard any more music. Never, never. Now you may despise me all that you want to, I concluded stepping recklessly backward and almost precipitating myself through an opening in the fire escape. Elizabeth, dearest Elizabeth, he cried, catching hold of me. For heaven's sake, be careful, unless you want to kill yourself. You might despise me less than, I murmured. What? he burst forth vehemently. Do you think that I could ever do anything but adore you? Nothing that you could possibly do would make any difference in my feelings towards you. Moreover, I am the one to be despised. I am the real pretender, not you. I am the utterly unscrupulous deceiver. Your little harmless pretenses were but the sweet sacrificing of your own preferences to another's, but mine were all put forth to gain my own selfish ends to make you care for me. Oh, Elizabeth, I am not a whit more musical than you are. It was my turn now to stand mute with astonishment while he went on. All my enthusiasm for music was just put on to please you. Those were law books and never scores of the symphonies you saw me carry. I would not go across the street for all the old composers in the world. Do you suppose that I would have stood through all those tedious concerts except to look at you? I don't care a straw for the most superb performance. I only care for... But why should I chronicle anything so personal as the confession of the second hypocrite? Aunt Sophia was vexed enough with us for staying away so long. She said, moreover, that she could not understand how anything short of a dead faint could have kept us outside during the three most beautiful selections on the program. She added severely that we had lost the fire music. But my companion whispered that we had found something infinitely better, namely the fire escape. All the family are delighted that Winthrop is not musical. 
but Aunt Sophia cannot forgive him as yet. She persists in maintaining that I was always intensely musical until I fell in love with a hypocritical young man who first won my affections by his false pretensions and then used his wickedly acquired influence to destroy that quality of artistic appreciation which she had been years in planting in my soul. End of section one. Recording by Sounds Sharp out of Toronto, Ontario, Canada.